0: it's Mark chapter 13. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what what magnificent buildings. Do you see all of these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, When will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming that I am he and he will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed, such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines These are the beginning of the birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before the governors and kings as as witnesses to them. Um, And the gospel must first be preached to the nations. Whenever you are are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say, Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand... Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything back. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be for those in those days who are pregnant women or nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in the winter because those will be the days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything in advance. But in those days following the distress... The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert, you do not know when this time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned tasks and tells one, tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch.
1: Right, let's, let's pray now. <laughs> Lord, we, uh, we want to now just still our hearts for a moment because we're hungry people who need to be fed the word of life. Lord, we, uh, we live our lives in the world and we go about our daily business and uh, we get our vision uh, consumed and our lives consumed with the things around us. And Lord, so often we become short-sighted. We, we, we stop seeing and stop engaging with the spiritual realities that in some ways we know are true but sometimes feel so distant to us. Lord, please, would you bring some of these spiritualities to rest and to bear on our hearts and our lives by the work of your spirit this morning. For your glory and for our good we pray. Amen. Now, um, Now, some people are obsessed with the end of the world and um you've got films like the uh, I, I don't know if it came out in 2012 i guess it did but the film 2012 which was this kind of scaremongering apocalyptic film or well, then you've got people who are kind of stockpiling their food for Brexit, Geddon, kind of thinking you know a no deal means the sun's going to stop shining and so you know get the food in now as if as if that's the end of the world and and people who think like about the end of the world a bit You've got people who think about nuclear war or something like that. Often it's a very negative thing, and it's a very scary thing. And Christians can be particularly susceptible. Some people and some Christians are maybe slightly obsessed with the end times. You've got the old street preachers with the signs, the end of the world is nigh. You've got this um, website, Skywatch TV, and and, and lots of Christians are involved in this stuff, kind of looking to the end times and reading the times and and interpreting things going on. And, And then these very popular books, certainly... Over in the States, the Left Behind series, which are all about the end of the world and what happens then. And, you know, maybe personally, you have times of intense suffering and hardship. And life just seems chaotic and unjust and harsh. And actually, in your heart as well, in those times, you start longing for the end of the world, for a new world. A renewed world. So some people can think about that a lot and can be obsessed with it. But I think, in our culture... Oh, hello. We'll carry on. In our culture, people think very little of it. Scientists tell us the Earth's got 7.5 billion years before the sun swallows up. And you know, that's kind of far enough away to like, not particularly concern me today. <laughs> it's, it's a distant and, and maybe a, a seemingly kind of irrelevant reality to affect my day-to-day life. And my hunch is that most of us here don't think about it all that much either. You know, maybe life is too good, so we're just not really that bothered to think about the end of the world. That just, again, seems irrelevant. Or or maybe life isn't good enough, but we're focused on the next iPhone or the next Air Maxes or the next holiday to Mexico or or whatever else to try and make life better. You see, we become very short-sighted, and the danger for us is that we slip into this kind of spiritual slumber, and we don't live life well. Mark 13 is a wake-up call for us. It is Jesus' wake-up call. Now, this isn't kind of apocalyptic, scaremongering, this kind of doom and gloom stuff. Mark 13 is actually a very positive message. It's a message of comfort, a message of encouragement to enable us to live well. Now I'm guessing on first read through you're thinking it didn't sound like that, but hopefully by the end you might be with me on that see, what's going on in this story of Jesus that Mark's telling is that for Jesus' friends who he's speaking to here, the bottom is about to fall out of their world. Everything's about to go wrong. And Jesus here is preparing them for what's about to happen so that they and their faith are not destroyed by their experiences. And he uses this picture language, he uses these stark pictures to describe these events that they're going to face. It's important that we see um, this in in verse 30, just near the end of of, of the chapter. Jesus says this, he says, uh, Truly I tell you, this generation, these people that he's speaking to, will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So Jesus is saying everything up to that point until verse 31 actually, is stuff that's going to happen for these people, these men that he's speaking to at this point. And it's only actually, uh, and and in the NIV, if you've got one of these red Bibles, it helpfully separates it for us with the heading. It's in the last little bit, verses 32 to to 37, that Jesus starts to take a longer view to his final coming at the end of the world as we know it. And we'll see how that's relevant to us uh, a little bit later. But we need to see this, Mark 13, is first and foremost about Jesus' friends and their experiences Now, we have a similar experience, so we can learn from them and from what he says to them. We can take the same lessons, but we need to see what it says to them first. And here's the first thing I want us to see. This is what Jesus says. He says to them, suffering is coming. See, this is like Jesus' final speech to his friends before going to war. And he's preparing them that it's going to be tough for them. We've seen it, if you've been with us, in the story of Mark over the last three weeks. Jesus is here in Jerusalem in the capital of, uh, of Israel, and he's at the heart of the Jewish religion, in and around the temple courts, and he's there for a fight with the religious establishment. Here Jesus, in, in his last weeks leading up to his death, he is attacking the whole corrupt system that is centered on the temple, the Jewish religious system that's kind of gone awry. And he's there at the very heart of where the religious life is, where the daily sacrifices happen in the temple, the place where people come and meet with God. And in what's been going on, Jesus has said this He said, Destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. You see, it's a fight to the death between Jesus and this religious system represented by this temple. And the question is kind of who's, who's going to win? This fight's the death. See, it seems not Jesus. Because the disciples are about to watch him in the next few days. As he's arrested and put to trial. As he's beaten and bloodied and bruised and then hoisted up on a cross as a criminal to die. On Good Friday. There he is, he's mocked and he's spat at by the great and the good as he dies a, a bloody and a shameful death. You see, in just a few days, what Jesus has been talking about so much, what he's been predicting is about to come true. And it's going to be a brutal reality before the very eyes of these men. All hope for them is going to die as they see Jesus die on the cross. But you see, these disciples are going to then be kicked when they're down as well. Because their whole lives are going to be turned upside down. They are then going to follow their king on the Calvary road of discipleship and suffering. And Jesus warns them in Mark 13 what that's going to look like. Firstly, they're going to have the threat of deception. Uh, If you want to have a look, you can see it there in verses 5 to 6 and and in 21 to 22. False messiahs are going to appear. They're going to claim to be Jesus and bring in his kingdom. And uh, and they're going to have to be on their guard and not be confused by these people trying to deceive them. Then there's also the threat of destruction there in verses 7 and 8. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Nations are going to be in conflict and earthquakes and famines. The whole kind of natural world and the whole social order just kind of breaking apart and all of this chaos that comes with it. And they're going to have to endure through these things. Also, they're going to face the threat of persecution in verses 9 to 13. The authorities are going to turn on these Christians just as they turned on their Christ. And Jesus says, You're going to be arrested. You're going to be brought to trial. You're going to be punished. You're going to be put under this pressure. And the pressure is going to be so great that even families are going to be tearing apart. Brothers are turning on brothers. Even parents turning on their children. And then and it kind of culminates in verse 13. Do you look down at it? Jesus says, Everyone will hate you because of me. Everyone will hate you because of me. You know, it's inevitable as a inevitable as a Christian that we will be hated. Is inevitable. And Jesus' followers are to persevere and stand up under that persecution. What Jesus says here is exactly what happened in the first century to these people he was speaking to. In actual fact, if you read the book of Acts, it's like the, the history in the Bible of the early church in the first century. And the book of Acts is this catalogue of persecution by the authorities. <coughs> Christians suffering for the gospel, being hated for Jesus, the political tumult and everything that was going around in the empire at that time. You see, you might, you might read these words of Jesus and think, Jesus, this just sounds pretty negative. It sounds doom and gloom. But think about it. Mark is writing these words a lot later than when Jesus said them. He's writing them in 64 to 70 AD in Rome. It's all kicking off at this point in the empire. Paul and Peter, the early leaders of the church, had just been killed by the Roman emperor. And so Mark's writing down Peter's story to get it recorded. Christians are being killed day after day. The empire's just in chaos. And here is Mark writing Don't you remember? 20, 25 years ago, Jesus said this was going to happen. This is exactly how he said it was going to be. This is reassuring and comforting for these people. They know Jesus is in control. This isn't abnormal. He hasn't dropped the ball here. It's just as he said it would happen. I guess the question is what about you? What about you when it's like the bottom has fallen out of your world? When just like everything just turns to chaos? How do you respond? Listen, that is not a sign that Jesus has left you or he has turned away. Or he has forgotten you. And so it's time for you to jack him in. Because if he's left you, quite frankly, you can leave him. No, Jesus warned us ahead of time. We'll face many troubles in this hostile world. We'll face deceivers. We'll face disasters. We'll face disruptors. Life is going to be tough in a whole host of ways. He's warned us ahead of time. And so even if it feels like the world is ending for you, (laughs) it just feels like, yeah, I don't know, your, your life is just done. Maybe you're there at the moment in your personal suffering and pain. Maybe some people are thinking, you know, even about Brexit like that. No, this is not the end. See what Jesus says in verse 8? He says, these are the beginning of birth pains. The beginning of perfect pains. These are the beginning of birth pains for us that will, in the end, lead us to the beautiful joy and the life of the new world that's perfected by Jesus. These are the things which are taking us there, which are preparing us for life, perfected and renewed by him. But listen, that's us getting ahead of ourselves. We're going to come back there at the end. This is the second thing that Jesus says to his followers. Your foundations will be tested. Tested. And by foundations, I mean what you build your life on, where you put your confidence in your life. If if where your foundations, where your confidence is, is in the wrong place, then you will be shattered. You will fall down when the day of disaster comes. You see, the, the disciples here, they were tempted to put their confidence and their hope in the status quo. In verse 1, they're walking out of Jerusalem, uh, and they're heading up the Mount of Olives, this mountain kind of beside the city of Jerusalem. Uh, and the Mount of Olives gives you the best view over the temple, which is on the hill in the middle of Jerusalem, on the east side of the temple. Uh, and so as they head out of the city, they're, they're looking at this temple, uh, and this temple was one of the great wonders of the Roman world. It was this massive, magnificent building on this hill. It was this imposing building. Um, some parts of it were 15 stories high. Some of, of the stones—I don't—I still don't believe this, but I read it. So some of the stones were 60 feet long in this temple. These stones of like white marble, this brilliant, beautiful um, stone. And, and on the outside of the temple, there's all this gold, pure gold, kind of cladding, and uh, and uh, it, it was kind of. Gold and marble, expensive and beautiful and radiant. And what happened is as the sun shone as it does in that part of the world, on the temple, it just looked like this mountain of fire. It just lit up. It just kind of, and literally to look at it, you had to put your sunnies on. That's what people said. It's just this bright, magnificent building. It was just beautiful. It's the pride of Israel. And so his disciple was, look at this amazing building. Isn't it incredible? Isn't it amazing, Jesus? This is Israel. This is the heart of Israel. But you know, it is a fragile. As magnificent and amazing as that building is, it is a fragile and a shaky place to place your confidence. And Jesus, Jesus responds in verse two. He says, "I promise you, that temple is going to be destroyed. Not a single stone will be left. Its days are numbered." You see, you know, it's a fight to the death between Jesus and and, and the temple and the religious system. Well, in the end, Jesus wins. In the end, he wins. It was uh, the year 70 AD when Emperor Titus, the Roman emperor, comes in. He sacks the city of Jerusalem and he destroys the temple. Raises it to the ground. And actually, this is um, there in verse 14, just this really random little verse about this abomination that causes desolation, standing where it doesn't belong. And quite rightly, we're like, Jesus, what are you talking about? Well, this, this is what he's talking about. This, this little phrase has got some history in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, and it has been promised. It's the promise that, uh, that is fulfilled when the non-Jewish emperor's troops come and ransack the temple, destroy the place of daily sacrifice. God's people have to abandon the temple when it's done and and finished. And in its place, the Roman uh, standards and flags are raised in the temple courts with their images of Caesar all over it. So the place where God was to be worshipped and known and loved and adored is now the place where Caesar is worshipped and known and loved and adored. That's the abomination that causes desolation. You see, that is an absolutely earth-shattering reality for these Jews. That is just world-changing for them. That's why in verses 24 and 25, Jesus says it's like the sun's going to stop shining and the moon's going to go dark and the skies are falling from the sky. This is language from Isaiah of God's judgment against the kingdoms of the earth. That is the terrifying reality that Jesus is speaking of. This is Jerusalem. This is God's people. This is his city. The light on the hill to the nations. The people who were there to attract and draw the nations in to come and know God. And the terrifying thing is, they are no different than the nations that have rejected God and turned away from him. And so God's terrifying presence comes in judgment on them. And he removes them, and he removes the city, and he destroys the temple. And Jesus warns, he says to his followers, When that happens, you get out of here. Because that is going to be a terrible time. It's going to be a time of destruction. Because when God's presence comes close to those who are rejecting and turning against him, it is an awful reality. So why we've got to ask ourselves, that was for them, we've got to ask ourselves, where is our confidence? Where is my security? You know, our our culture is so self-confident, isn't it? So self-confident in its progress and its prosperity that together we're going to build the perfect society. And and Britain is so self-confident in this whole Brexit business because we know how to do society well and we can do it ourselves. And, you know, the society that we're building, it seems so often so beautiful and so immovable, like this great big building that is just indestructible, but it is not a sure foundation for our security or for our confidence. This whole approach to life that has no space whatsoever for God, that every point rejects him and turns against him, every stone of it will be taken down. Every single stone will be destroyed as the awful and the holy presence of God comes near to our society and to our culture because when the presence of God comes to a world that is rejecting him, it's terrible. Perhaps personally, we, we base our life on wanting and desiring and seeking to either have or to keep, I don't know, like the status quo of what we expect life should look like for us. The, the marriage and the family and the health or the money, or the designer clothes, or the career, or whatever things that we just think people like us should have, and that's what our life should be like, uh, and the experience that we should have. It's the status quo. It's just what we should have. We, put, we kind of want to base our lives on those things. They are not a sure foundation. They are not a sure foundation. And if Jesus is not at the heart of any of those things, that when we do have them and we are blessed with them, there's a sense in which every single part of them will be taken down. Don't put your confidence, don't put your security in those things. The beautiful song reminds us, it says, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Anything other than Jesus, we will sink. But on Jesus, we will stand. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, or other grounds, is sink and sand. You see, this happens when Jesus comes in great power and glory. Let's look at verse uh, 26 and 27 together. what Jesus says, at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now, I guess when you hear that and when we read that, you probably initially think, well, that's about Jesus coming back to end history. And that's what I think I probably thought when I started to look at this last week. I think it's not and we're reading our grid onto it if we do that because remember Jesus said in verse 30 this is all going to happen in their lifetime so this is talking about something that happened for these followers in their life this is an event in history not the end of history and actually Daniel again helps us because he had a vision 500 years before of the son of man appearing like Jesus talks about here and and I want us to see uh, Daniel's vision I think I've got it on a Yeah, there you are, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. You just find it in my Bible. This is what Daniel saw 500 years earlier. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven... Now listen to this. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. You see, Daniel too sees the Son of Man coming with great power and glory. But where is he coming to? He's not coming to the earth. He's coming to the Ancient of Days. That is God in heaven. This is the Son of Man being welcomed into heaven by God on the clouds to reign, to be worshipped, for people to come from every nation to worship and praise him. And so Jesus here in, in Mark is speaking of his glory, his coming glory into heaven. You see, the corrupt sacrificial system of the temple is done. It's done with when Jesus dies on the cross, the sacrifice once for all, no more sacrifice needed. He's done it, he's completed it, he's finished it. The sinless, spotless one has died as a sacrifice, the innocent for the guilty. And so the sacrificial system is done, and God shows that he approves of Jesus and his sacrifice. He, if you like, vindicates Jesus. He raises him. The Spirit raises Jesus from death to life. And a few weeks later, he raises Jesus again from the earth to heaven. And we read about that in the Bible. And so Jesus goes to heaven, to the highest place, on the clouds, in glory, in power, and he enters before the Ancient of Days. And he comes on the clouds to heaven to reign. He comes there to receive worship. He comes there to call people from the ends of the earth to himself and to receive the worship of all the nations. And from that place, still today, from heaven, from the control room of the universe, Jesus still reigns. He oversees all things. He, uh, he empowers and ordains the spread of the gospel. And, and so that's why we read in verse 10 that his... his, his um. His kingdom spreads to all nations. And in verse 27, he's gathering his chosen people from the very ends of the earth to himself. Again, Acts records exactly this in the first century. The chaos of life in the first century for the Christians, this persecuted minority, people being locked in jail and killed and all sorts of things. All that does, spreads the gospel out. If the empire comes against the church, the gospel goes out, and it spreads through Acts to the whole known world at that time, to the ends of the earth, to Rome. Actually, Jesus promises in Mark 13, he says, you're going to go and speak to governors and to kings. And Acts shows us they spoke the gospel to governors and to kings. You see, when the presence of God, when the presence of Jesus comes close, it doesn't just come in terrifying and, uh, and kind of awful judgment. The second effect of the, of the coming presence of Jesus is salvation. Is the kingdom growing? Is new life? Is new hope? Is new joy? Is salvation to the ends of the earth. And so as he comes, he saves, even whilst he judges. See, this is what's happening in this first century. This Jewish religious system is being totally dismantled. But it's only dismantled as the new reality is replacing it. Jesus is saving men and women from nations all around the world. People who know his presence, who know life in him, who have trusted in his sacrifice, and who know the joy of all these things. There's something greater going on, there's something new that's going to happen. This is why I think we don't need to be scared. We don't need to be scared. It is true that in our culture and our society at the moment, stuff's getting tougher for Christians. It's getting more hostile. It's going to get a bit more chaotic. Our culture is going in a certain way, and it's further and further away from the God who created and made us. There's going to be some chaos and some pain. It's going to come. We're feeling it already, some of us. But listen, Jesus rules over every single little bit of it. He rules over it all. And do you know what? As the gospel is opposed, and as we come under a hard time, you know, maybe the day comes where I end up inside for something I've said here. It is possible. I'm not saying it's here yet, but it's possible. But do you know what's going to happen? The gospel is going to spread more quickly. It's going to spread more quickly. Because Jesus is going to gather his chosen people from the ends of the earth. Every single day that Jesus delays his return is another day of salvation. Every day he does not come back. Every day he does not come back, he has given more people the chance to turn back to him as he draws near. And that's what his presence is doing in one sense. it's coming near to offer salvation even today as he delays his return. But his presence is also coming near in judgment against those who oppose him. And listen, I think we're just starting to see it, even whilst things get more hostile and whatever else. I think we're starting to see God's terrible and holy displeasure at our culture and our society and the way that we're going and the, and the choices we're making as we, as we reject him and this kind of baseline story of liberal progressive stuff and, and, and secular humanism. And, and do you know what? People's lives are just falling apart under that. You see that, don't you? You see it in your friends. Their lives are literally falling apart. They're crumbling. Because it doesn't deliver life to the full. These are the stones being taken down even today. You know, we, we get told sometimes directly, or sometimes it's just it's there implicitly as Christians, that we are on the wrong side of history because we're not kind of part of the progressives and, and that's, they're the winners, we're the losers. Guys, that is not true. Mark 13 says history is his. It is Jesus's. He rules from heaven. It is his. He will be vindicated in the end. You know what the great thing is? So will his people. So You only keep hearing that you're on the wrong side of history. You'll keep hearing that, but it's not true, because you're on Jesus' side if you're his people. I guess guess this is the question you might be asking is, what does this mean? What what do you want me to do as a result of this? Well, this is what I think, uh, sorry, this is what I think we are to do. We're not to look for times, we're not to look for signs, we are to look for Jesus. So we're not to be looking up at the sky, kind of, is he coming there? Is he coming here? You know, kind of looking for things like that. But we're to be looking out into the world. We're to be busy about his mission for his glory while we wait for him to come. See, the disciples come with the question in verse 4. Tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled. They're asking about times and about science. But Jesus says, no, listen, you don't need a roadmap of events. You don't need to get busy kind of code cracking and working out, oh, are the pieces of the juggle, um, jigsaw here yet, and, and is he coming? No, actually, every single sign pointed to in Mark 13 is a sign that the end isn't yet here. So carry on with business as usual, basically. Jesus is crystal clear in verse 32. Look at it. This is when he's talking about his final coming, about that day or hour, no one knows. No one knows. So we don't know when. And quite frankly, we won't know when. So let's stop trying to find out if we're interested in that. If we do seek that kind of understanding, and, and I see it in people in our community, you get deceived, you get alarmed, you get distracted. We're not to obsess about times and signs and other stuff. Instead, we need to know this, these two things. We need to know that Jesus is in control. And we need to know that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is in control. Jesus is coming back. As we wait, we need to know that he is in good control. Even though the hard times are coming, even though personally it might feel like the bottom is falling out of our world, he knows what's coming. He's warned us. He's prepared us. And this is the one who says this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You can trust his words more than life itself. As he also says in verse 20, that he's going to protect his people. He's cutting short certain things to protect his own people. He knows what's coming. He doesn't give us this exact blue, blueprint for our life and for our future and whatever else. But he gives us a rock-solid confidence that he is in good control of everything in our life. And he can be trusted. So we need to turn back to his word again and again. And hear his word for us. Know that he's in control and He's good but also know that he is coming back and be ready. Because it, in one sense, it doesn't matter when he comes back. We need to know that who it is that's coming. That's the important thing. It's Jesus that is coming. And he promises here at the end that he will return. In, in verse 34, he, he describes it like a homeowner. So if a homeowner has gone away for a while, he's gone away to heaven for business to kind of rule the world, but he's coming back from his business trip, uh, and he's coming back to save uh, and gather his own. It's a beautiful scene, isn't it, when, um, you've, I don't know, you might have memories from your own childhood or you've seen it in films or, or maybe in your own experience. When, when a mum or dad has been away from the family home for a while, say on business or something, and, and they come back a week later and, and walk in through the door, and, and the children just, just rush to mum and dad, arms open wide, kisses and cuddles, and just delighted they've come home. Mum's back, dad's back. The homeowner is here. Well, listen, Jesus' return, it is like that for Christians. It is that moment. We are children of God. And he is coming back to us. And so we look with eagerness and expectancy and delight and joy that he's coming back. And we can rush to him. You see, we ought to have that excitement, that expectancy and that joy about the coming of Jesus. It's not something to be scared of or to to be fearful of. No, he is coming. He's coming to vindicate his people. He's coming to renew all things. He's coming to perfect all things. He's coming to end our suffering and our pain. He's coming to reunite, reunite us with our loved ones who have died in him. And he's coming to bring the eternal joy and the peace that we so long for. And so we can be expectant. We can look forward with delight. It doesn't really matter when he comes, but it does matter who is coming, yeah? We need to look for Jesus. And so this is the big message that Jesus has. All of this is an introduction to this one point, (laughs) but it's a short point. Watch, be on guard. Be ready. Be alert. Yeah? Not said to scare you, but said to get you ready. I mean, it's there in, in verse 5, in verse 9, in 23, in 33, in 35, in 37. He says these things all the way through. Be ready. It's going to happen. And the question is this. This is a question to ask in your heart. To ask really Seriously. Is Jesus going to find me sleeping or awake? I don't mean physically. It's okay if he comes in the night and you're asleep. Spiritually. Is he going to find you sleeping or awake? Are you going to be alert and ready, watchful, expectant, hope filled? Or are you going to be in spiritual slumber? See, this is a spiritual alarm clock to wake us up. To get us to sit up and listen to what he has to say. Wake up from your slumber. Be ready for this son of man to come back because he will come back in power and in glory. And the eternal realities that today seem so distant to us, that for so many people in this city just seem far off and they laugh at it and they mock it. Well, these eternal realities are real. And there is a day that will come where everyone will see. And we often sing together, together, don't we, that everyone will say that Jesus is Lord. I'm sure it's possible to be unhelpfully obsessed with Jesus' final coming and, and, you know, kind of all this end time stuff. I think Mark 13 shows us we ought not be that. But as I said at the start, I think the problem is that most of us don't give it a second thought never crosses our mind, never a concern in our hearts. We just don't care much. And so this this command, this invitation, this rebuke to watch and to be on our guard, I think is what we need to hear. You see, time is running out. True, we don't know when he's coming, but we do know that today we are one day closer than we were yesterday to him coming, right? Right? We are one day closer. And this is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. And who knows, tomorrow might not be. So if you're here and you're checking Jesus out, and you're interested in church, and you like the community, and and you're you're intrigued by what we have to say, we love having you here. We want to be a church that always has people like that around us. We're grateful that you're here. We hope you like being amongst us. We want you to enjoy being here. But I've got to say, if you know that's you in your heart, why are you holding yourself back from giving yourself to him? Too many selves there, but why are you holding yourself back? Why delay beyond today? What do you gain? What do you gain by delaying and risking that he is not right in what he says here? What do you gain in keeping your heart and your life from the God who made you? The God who loves you? The God who gave himself as a sacrifice for you? What do you gain by delaying and holding yourself back from him? Time is running out. He will come back. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow. It might be a thousand years. I don't know if I've got tomorrow if he doesn't come back. I'm not not trying to scare people into the kingdom. I'm trying to say what Jesus says. But for us Christians, it cuts cuts deep too. Are you in spiritual snooze mode? Okay, so maybe you're like, I'm not totally asleep quite that awake really I'm kind of hitting the snooze on the alarm. You know what that's like, don't you? When did Jesus' return actually make a difference in your ordinary everyday life? When was actually something that you thought about and and even longed for in the middle of your office or, or, or at a home or when you're looking after the kids or whatever? When was it something that actually changed the decision you made in daily life? Are you living in light of this, expectant and hopeful, watching, being on guard? If not, maybe this is something you could do really practically. Before you leave this building today, go onto your phone, uh, go into your reminder thing or whatever, your alarm thing. Set a few random reminders for the next year, random days, five or six days over the next year. And the reminder will say this, he could come today. So over the next year, you'll just get this random, in the middle of your work day or whatever, it'll pop up. He could come today. Not to scare you, but to remind you that that is true and and you need to be on guard and be on your watch and be ready. That the hope-filled expectation of his coming just infiltrate every corner of your life. And, And listen to this, finally. Please, please, please tend to your spiritual health. Don't go into snooze mode. We're so keen to are we? we? look after our physical health. We're, you know, we've got a, a ladies' gym group in our church. I mean, who would have thought that? But we do. You've got this little WhatsApp group and you're all going to the gym and stuff. That's great in, to be encouraged. We, we, you know, different people diet at different times. We look after our, our diet and our physical health. We look after our emotional health with our, in our community life. We help one another to look after our financial health. And that's all very well and good. All to be encouraged. But why do we neglect our spiritual health? Why do we never open the word of God in our life? Why do we neglect coming to church? Why do we neglect confessing our sins to one another and praying together and and fighting against sin and being accountable and, and all these other things and giving generously to the church and we neglect these spiritual realities at our own peril? Tend to your spiritual health. Put some deliberate energy into that. Make some time for it. Invest some money into it. Build some friendships around it so that we don't help one another to slumber, but to be ready and alert and awake when Jesus comes. As I said, this is a word of encouragement. This is a word of comfort. I, I hope it's landed like that. Um, it comes with an edge, obviously. but It's not scaremongering. This is wonderful news. These are good promises and great hope for Christians. In glory and power, the homeowner, the one who owns all things, will return. He will come to us and it will be for our joy and our delights. And he will establish his kingdom. And while we wait for that, we face the chaos and the persecution and the suffering and the difficulty. He's in good control. We can trust him, we can look to him, we can look for him. He holds us fast in all things, even in life and even in death. So stand firm and watch out with hope. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and come quickly. For we look forward to the day of your return in power and glory. But Lord, for as long as you choose to delay, we trust you that it is a day of salvation, and so we ask that salvation will be worked out from this church and this community. And you would keep us alert and ready, whatever watchful, on our guards, serving your kingdom and ready for you to return we cannot do that. We need you to do that in us. So we ask you to do it, we pray. Amen.